Welcome everyone to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affects and is affected by our economy. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato, coming to you live from my apartment. I hope everyone is staying safe. And today, we're going to talk about banks. They helped start the Great Recession of 2008, but now they are long for the ride like the rest of us, and we are going to discuss how that is going for them. And then we have two quick takes, one on the announcement by Bayer to hold the first ever virtual shareholder meeting in Germany, something that was illegal last month, and then we continue our discussion on how the pandemic is affecting different regions' economies with Monaco Takaba, my colleague in Japan. Thanks as always for joining us. Stay tuned. Like the tsunami after the earthquake, once the COVID pandemic subsides, our globe will likely be dealing with an economic depression. When possible, governments across the globe are trying to inject money into the economy to keep it afloat. The U.S. has issued a massive economic relief plan. China has been distributing cash via loans through its banks, as has the U.K. and E.U. But banks are just like other industries right now. They are being tested by the economic impacts of the COVID pandemic while also being the conduit for the recovery and lauded in some instances for their response. Since the Great Recession of 2008, banks have improved their ESG ratings, mostly by being better at governance, you know, not paying insane bonuses, not taking too many risks. But where they have faltered by our assessment is in their social pillar, how they developed their workforce, ensured their products are safe and not fraudulent, kept their data secure and private. Banks have had issues with their customers in the past. According to my guest, Yakub Malish, 71% of banks globally saw an increase in customer complaints over the past three years. And now banks are needed to effectively implement customer relief measures and protect their asset quality while doing so because we all know what happens when the banks fail. So Yakub, I think the thing that first caught my eye and why I wanted to talk to you was a thing you wrote about and it was the announcement in late March by the big six banks in Canada that they would forgive mortgages and provide relief on uh, other credit products on a case-by-case basis. That seems pretty good by the banking industry. Yeah, but uh, I don't think we can use the word forgive. Many banks did this globally. Uh, it's more that they postpone the the mortgage repayments and, and any loan repayments. I think now most of the banks decided to go for six months, but it only means, uh, you know, that the customers will start repaying these after six months. So it's more like a, like immediate relief, right? Because many customers, especially individuals who perhaps lost their jobs, uh, or you know, or maybe their hours were cut, or small businesses who had to stay closed because of the social distancing measures that they just have no liquidity on their hands. Uh, so this is more like a relief for them. So now you don't have to repay, but then you'll have to resume. So I mentioned in the intro about banks having a lot of customer complaints in the past three years. I mean, just think about Wells Fargo, for example, having to basically rebuild itself after the massive fraud it engaged in, or, or Deutsche Bank, and there's there's more I can name. I won't list them all. If a bank of poor ESG quality starts to help out customers by implementing useful policies, which I think the business sense of which go, goes hand in hand, uh, then how does this change your analytical take on them? Uh, 
I don't know if I'm just like too cynical, but uh, I wouldn't be too fast in, in giving credit to any company who does anything similar, because I think uh, it's also just a basic survival instinct. So what do you do if you know that perhaps your client doesn't have the money right now, uh, but will later on? Uh, so will you rather, you know, provide him with, with some sort of a relief, which of course, like complicates things for you a little bit. So you still have to deal with it. So it's good, of course. But uh, well, would you provide this relief or you will really push for it and, and perhaps bankrupt this customer and you will never see the money back? So uh, I, I, I definitely want to give them some credit uh, and especially if they, are, um, if they are perhaps doing more than their competitors or more than what is required by their governments or central banks. But I would say it's also it just makes good sense to do something like this in a situation like this. Yeah. So there's there's all this stimulus money running through banks packaged in various ways that we're not going to get into right now, but it is being used for vital recovery efforts. What's the chance of impropriety? What should investors be aware of since the banks have become kind of this network hub of trying to help people out during the pandemic? I think that, you know, if the banks were perhaps not so careful uh, about what they were selling to their customers in the past... Which, which would be reflected in the perhaps rising customer complaints. Uh, so I think the banks who are not, care, uh, not so careful in the past could maybe see um, um, like defaults in their portfolios increase more because that would mean that, you know, they were selling things to customers who now uh, cannot afford them because, you know, perhaps they, they didn't really care about their, uh, their credit worthiness or they were selling them inappropriate products. Just to give an idea of who got the most complaints against them in the sector, here's some banks with the most severe complaints as of March 17th when our colleague Chris Vernon published his bank's injury report. Bank of America, Westpac, Donsky Bank, Wells Fargo, and TD Bank. That's that's the top five. And there are others. And all the controversies were around fraudulent charges against customers. So there's this fear out there that banks will again issue this money incorrectly due to the panic or just the sheer mass of requests coupled with the speed of deciding whether to fund those requests and a history of some problematic things with customers. I mean, with the mortgage crisis, it did begin with the U.S. government saying it wanted more people to buy houses. So a crisis can be spurred through good intentions. Yeah. So even providing all of these relief measures or, you know, providing some extra liquidity, uh, it's still, you know, there is still potential that the banks will not do it in the right way, right? That they will maybe try to bundle it with some other products or again, you know, that some sort of mis-selling could occur and we will see the effects of that later on, you know. Later on, when maybe the situation improves, you know, the regulators will again start looking at, okay, what did you actually do during the crisis? Like, did you do all these measures in the right way or were you trying to make money off of your clients even then? Okay, so what's the long-term question you're asking yourself right now as you watch all this fold uh, unfold? Uh, what's the question the investor is going to be asking when we all are finally let out of our houses in uh, a decade? I think this uh, this depends like um, uh, on maybe on the horizon of your thinking. So I have to say, uh, and, and that makes sense too, that... Uh, like much of the questions now are actually if the banks are going to keep, you know, maybe paying dividends, uh, if they're going to, of course, like um, 
pay any other let's say, or distribute any any capital to their shareholders or bondholders or anyone and that's a legitimate question right now right but uh, so looking a little bit more uh, more long term um, we need to evaluate you know if 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 what what's better right like actually banks may be you know paying their dividends now but later on they could be in need of that money or if they should rather slash it now you know like be more conservative like prepare better for the future because no one really knows how the situation will develop if it's going to get much worse or not And the dividend question right now is happening throughout the marketplace because during the COVID pandemic, many are calling for the canceling of dividend payments to ensure that companies remain cash stable. And that cancellation is a big deal for investors because dividends are important. Equity markets are volatile and a lot of investors just want some cash back for their investment. Historically, 50% of the return in the equity market is due to dividends. It's all about the concept of return of capital to shareholders. Public markets are set up such that shareholders own the company. And if it was a private company, you'd get the profit from that company. But with a public company, the owners get money returned in a different form. That is what a dividend is. Now, in modern corporate finance, there has been a growing use of stock buybacks as a way to return capital to investors instead of straight cash dividends. In good times, companies would have borrowed money to buy back shares as a form of dividend. But the amount of dividend, in whatever form, needs to always go through an okay process by the shareholders himself. So does the appointment of a new director or pay packages for the CEO. All these things get their sign off at what's called the annual general meeting, aka the AGM. And AGMs are usually held in person. But now there's a pandemic, so authorities have canceled the AGM meetings in many instances. However, in Germany, Bayer the German pharma company and co-owner of Monsanto decided to convene its first ever virtual AGM for April 28th for next week, maintaining its planned dividend schedule despite the COVID pandemic. Many companies have not been able to do that because they have not been able to hold their AGM. The move is unprecedented in a country that did not previously recognize online AGMs and only temporarily allowed them to help companies deal with the fallout from the coronavirus. And basically, bareholders' shareholder meeting will be broadcast online, and investors will be able to vote on the shareholder resolutions electronically or by the mail, and they can submit their questions to the board up to two days in advance. To explain what this all means for everyone, I have with me Florence Summer, who is a governance expert and just wrote a research report on Bayer. And Florian, tell me, why is this such an important move for shareholders and the payment of dividends in general during the COVID pandemic? So Bayer, essentially, because they're moving the AGM online, can expect to pay the dividend as planned on time. Other companies that didn't go virtual, that didn't move the AGM online, have to postpone their dividend because if shareholders can't meet to approve the dividend, they can't pay the dividend. So buyer, because they moved the meeting online, can expect to pay their dividend, which they've maintained in terms of the, the management proposal, uh, after the meeting. So that's a plus for, for shareholders. They will be happy. They will uh, presumably get the dividend. And this is sort of, I think, you know, important in the context of what buyer's management is trying to do, which is essentially to regain shareholder trust. 
because over the last couple of years, they've come, come in for a lot of criticism, mainly because of the very controversial takeover of the U.S. rival Monsanto. So they took over Monsanto in 2018, and they've gotten into a lot of legal trouble and reputational trouble because there's still lots of ongoing court cases alleging that Monsanto's weed killer Roundup causes cancer. So investors have been very unhappy in terms of the way that Bio has handled this takeover. And so there have been lots of questions and lots of criticism. Right. So shareholders are appeased by the dividend. But what does this do for the ability of shareholders to voice their opinion with how they think the company is being run? So the way that Bayer has set up this virtual meeting essentially restricts shareholder rights by limiting their ability to ask questions of management. So basically, usually what happens in most countries at the AGM, you're a shareholder, you go to the AGM, you can stand up, you can ask a tough question, and you can expect an answer in front of everybody. Now, what buyers done here is they've essentially said, you have to pre-submit your questions two days in advance before the meeting, and management pretty much gets to choose what questions it answers. So essentially, there won't be a live Q&A session. There won't be sort of a two-way communication on a certain topic at the actual AGM. And on top of that, they essentially get to cherry pick which questions they answer. And I think that's hugely significant for shareholders' ability to scrutinize management, ask the tough questions. Uh, that sounds pretty good for Bayer since it's it's having such difficulty right now with with its investors. What if this is really successful uh, and entrenched companies or companies under fire from their owners are uh, just decide, uh, you know, let's have these meetings virtual going forward? So I think a lot of companies and also some investors have been arguing quite strong, strongly for the virtual meetings because, A, you know, it might be more convenient. It might help shareholders based in different countries to attend the meeting more easily. It might be cheaper. You don't actually have to organize this whole physical event. But other investors, mainly retail investors and investor associations, have been quite critical. And, and I think the main point here is this question about being able to ask the tough questions of management, being able to scrutinize management at the AGM. So the government will have to make a tough call, but I think that unless there's a major scandal or something goes massively wrong at one of those upcoming virtual AGMs in Germany, they won't be able to go back to the status quo. Now, then the question becomes, is there a way of making virtual meetings better in terms of their respect of shareholder rights. And I frankly think that there is. So I think people will have to think about a way of actually giving shareholders uh, an actual, a real possibility to have, ask the tough questions at the AGM. And I, and I think that's possible. If you think about you know, having live Q&A sessions or limiting the reasons why management could potentially refuse an answer, I think those are important avenues to explore. And I think if the reforms go in that direction, then you can see a virtual meeting that actually might be more convenient and then also respects important shareholder rights.
Okay, so we are continuing our series talking to different researchers on our MSCI ASG research team in different parts of the globe about how COVID-19 is affecting them and their economies. And today I'm joined by my colleague Minako Takaba in our Tokyo office to discuss things in Japan because six days ago, Japan passed 10,000 domestic cases of COVID-19. Prime Minister Abe Shinzo expanded a state of emergency. On April 17th, the government of Japan adopted an economic package that was around 20% of its GDP while making additional contributions to the IMF's Catastrophe Containment and Relief Trust and the Poverty Reduction and Growth Trust. So, Monaco, thank you so much for joining me. How has it been in Japan right now as the pandemic starts to spread? Uh, so, uh, in Japan, the, there are many companies are started to, you know, of course, suspending or employment of uh, contract workers uh, because they hire lots of contract workers as a uh, uh, workforce uh, at the factory or in the office. Uh, and, the, you know, they have a contract so they can, you know, company can suspend uh, their uh, employment based on the contract uh, agreement. So uh, now they are losing job uh, for this uh, difficult time. And the government uh, now decided to uh, provide financial support to, uh, you know, 100,000 JPM, which is 1,000 US dollars uh, to each person uh, in each citizen in the country. So, but that's a very small uh, cash support. Uh, I don't think it's enough for them to leave to keep the uh, living. You know, I've been asking our other colleagues about how everything is going in the regions. I talked to Arna about Germany. I talked to Orly about France. Uh, what do you think the long-term effects of this crisis is going to be on people? Is there something that you're seeing that this uh, that might be here for the long term and uh, might actually be possibly beneficial uh, for workers after COVID uh, ends? Until now, uh, not many companies uh, started uh, work from home. Uh, because because of this crisis, they they installed the system, so uh, they started this style. So now, uh, because of this flexible working style started by this crisis, I think uh, more you know employees, for example, female employees having a small kid, have a you know more option to 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 do a flexible working style. So. Whether the company offer the working this type of working style uh, would be a you know criteria for employee where they want to work for, so that might be a choice for uh, you know female workers or uh, female workers having high skill set to choose the company to work for going forward. And that's it for the week. I wanted to thank Yakub, Florian, and Monaco for joining me this week to discuss the news with an ESG twist. And I hope you're all doing well out there and staying safe and trying to stay sane. Thanks as always for listening during these trying times, and I will talk to you next week.
The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotion or recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.